sports fans rejoice. You're listening to my team, my voice with MTMV Sports. Hey, what's going on? It's Justin Sarachik, editor of Rapzilla.com, and you are watching MTMV Sports. Keep it locked. Hello and welcome to the Know Your Personnel podcast. We are on all major podcast apps. You can also find us on MTMV Sports Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to both stations that you never miss an episode. Please remember to leave us a five-star rating. Download and share this episode with a friend so we can continue to grow the game. I'm very excited for our next guest. Let's jump in. Uh, welcome back to the KYP Podcast. I'm very pleased to introduce our next guest. Coach Eric Olin is the head coach of UC San Diego men's basketball team. Coach Olin, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, a little bit about your program here, and I, I, I try to do my homework on all the uh, people that I interview, and I, I always knew you ran a really good program, but then when I started looking at the numbers, uh, it's safe to say you're one of the finest programs on the West Coast. In your seven years as head coach, 159 wins to 56 losses, three conference titles in the last four years. Uh, four years, you've made it to the CCAA tournament, five straight 20-win season. And last year, this this season, the, the 19 and 20 season, you were 30 and one and ranked as high as sixth in the country before our seasons were cut short with the COVID virus. And you're two-time CCAA coach of the year. That's quite a resume uh, for seven years uh, down in San Diego. Yeah, thanks. We've uh, we've had our share of success in the last few years, and um, you know, fortunate to have a lot of a lot of really talented players and uh, you know, great kids that that kind of helped us build uh, build our program into you know what we felt like was one of the very best in the country at the Division two level. Well, I agree, definitely one of the very best in the country in the Division two level. We'll get into how you how you built that and how you continue to build that with your players and your staff and yourself. But why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, why don't we start with how you got into the game, maybe starting in your high school career, um, who you played for, what did you learn, and how all that came about? Oh, yeah, well, we're going, we're going way back with the, uh, the, the start. Um, so I'm from Alabama, Mobile, Alabama originally. Um, played at uh, McGill Tool in high school in, uh, in Mobile, and uh, Alabama's a big football state. So um, in terms of basketball, it it, um, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't, um, it wasn't at the forefront of kind of sports in, in Alabama, but that, that's kind of where my interests were. And, and so we had a, uh, my high school basketball coach was maybe a little bit more of a football guy. And, um, you know, it was a lot more about kind of learning how to play hard and compete and, and some of those things versus I think some of the X's and O's and, and some of the the level of coaching you see out here, uh, especially kind of in, in Southern California. And, and I mean, man, I, w- I was blown away by the high school basketball. I, I'm continuing to, you know, be blown away by the level of the high school basketball and the coaching that you see out here. And, um, you know, that wasn't something that was available to everyone um, at that time, you know, 20 years ago, I think it's, it's certainly gotten better, but um, so, you know, there's a lot of focus on like, little less X and O we didn't have a shot clock like the and all those things um led to some kind of grinded out style games and not a lot of like offensive basketball at at that time uh when I was playing in high school 
Um, but I think there's still a lot of lessons that you can learn from that. Just, um, you know, the competitiveness, the, the intensity level, all those things I think were, were things that, um, we were able to pick up and that translated for, for everyone. But, um, you know, it was just a little different setting than maybe some of what, what you're, uh, you're providing your players these days. Well, yeah, I would say that uh, California basketball, especially Southern California basketball, is uh, pretty high level in in uh, comparison, maybe with the majority of the country. And if you if you believe that you think that's like the same thing in Alabama, um, let me ask you this: There's no shot clock in Alabama, and I don't think there still is. I've always believed the reason is is because in order to put one in, it costs money. I mean, it's co- it will cost the school districts many thousands of dollars to program that wire that put it in go underneath the floor, go in the walls, all the things that has to be done. Is that the main reason why they don't do it? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. Like when you start talking about um, trying to implement that across all high schools, across the state, um, I think budgets are, are probably the number one barrier. I know that Georgia just, um, uh, I think, is going to implement that, which I think is great. And, and hopefully um, some of the states in that region will start to follow suit. Um, I think Georgia's plan is like a three-year implementation. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, which, you know, as long as it happens, I think is, is great for, for those kids in the, in, the um, in high school basketball. And, and hopefully, you know, at some point in the future, we get to a, a place where everybody's growing up with a shot clock and, and kind of understanding how that plays. And, and maybe we'll even get to a, a universal setting on the number and all kinds of different things. But you don't feel like uh, baby steps are better than no steps. And, and so, um, you know, I know that there's a push for that in some other States and, and I hope that we see it. Very good. So you, you're a long way from Mobile, Alabama here in San Diego. Um, talk about how you got into coaching, uh, who your mentors were, maybe some early jobs you had that helped get you to where you're at now. Yeah. So uh, I stayed, I stayed in Mobile and uh, I had my collegiate career at, at a little NA school there called Spring Hill College uh and I played for a coach named Bill Carr um and uh Bill is actually a, a West Coast guy he's he's currently the women's uh head coach at Santa Clara um but um playing for him learned a lot about uh learned a lot about basketball and then um that's really how I got into coaching um he <clears throat> he had left Spring Hill and um, actually was taking the, the job. There was a stop in between, but he was taking the job at, at UC San Diego um, on the men's side, um, kind of right as I was finishing school and, um, you know, gave me a call and, and said, Hey, you, you have any interest in like, coming out to San Diego and, um, and helping him out. And, you know, I'm like a lot of people finishing college and not really knowing exactly what, my next step was going to be, I thought, no, nah, that sounds great, you know? And, um, so moved out to San Diego and, and kind of got, um, got started in, in coaching. Um, and so he, he's at the top of the list in terms of, of mentors for me, in terms of, uh, played for him, uh, worked for him. Uh, he got me into the business. And, and so, um, you know, obviously appreciative of him. He's someone that I'm still, uh, close to today and, and talk with all the time about uh, all things coaching and basketball. And, um, so he, he certainly was a big part of that uh, progression. And then, you know, I've been at UC San Diego ever since, um, co- you know, college basketball 
in particular, I think is a really transient business. So um, yeah. I'm probably the exception uh, in terms of just working at the same place um, my entire career. But I spent uh, I spent my first three years working for Bill as an assistant at UC San Diego, and um, then the next six years I spent working for Chris Carlson. Uh, so Bill, uh, Bill left, uh, to go over to USD and work for Billy Greer, uh, when he took that job and, uh, Chris came in and gave me the opportunity to stick around, um, you know, and, um, learned a lot from Chris, uh, Chris kind of comes from the Ben Howland coaching tree, spent a lot of time with coach Howland at different stops in uh, Santa Barbara and NAU and Pittsburgh and UCLA. And, um, so, uh, spent six great years working for, uh, for coach Carlson and, and learn a lot from him. And then, um, you know, he, he left to get into more of an administrative role, um, with, uh, with the WCC and, uh, and I took over after, after nine years of, as an assistant. So my whole career in one place is a little bit unique, I think, um, when it comes to college basketball, but, uh, you know, I've been fortunate in the way things have worked out as well. You know, it's funny that you say that, that uh, college basketball is a transient type of job. And I, um, those who have listened to any of the podcasts before this will know I, a lot of the college coaches I interview, I mean, it, some guys I've had who have been literally 10 to 12 places in 14 or 15 years, and it's all over the country. And I can imagine the pressure and stress that that would put on you and your family every year to be in that. Uh, but then I looked at your bio and I'm looking through it. And I'm like, okay, where's the next player? And it's like, oh, San Diego. And I'm like, wow, this guy has stayed at the, at the same place the entire time. And to, to boot, I mean, you're in sunny San Diego, one of the best places in, in, in the country to live in my opinion. So you've been, you've been uh, very, very fortunate in that as coming from an assistant to the interim. How were you able to secure that job as an assistant coach when, when, the, head jo- when the head job opened up? How are you able to get that job? Many times athletic directors want to look outside and they don't realize maybe the best coach is actually in their gym. How are you able to convince your AD and school and admin that you were the best guy for that job? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the, there's a lot of people in that situation probably every year. Um, mm-hmm. I was fortunate in, in some of the timing, um, you know, uh, when, when Chris, when, when coach Carlson uh, decided to leave, it was um, late September, early October. Um, so just in terms of on an interim basis, um, you know, I don't know that they, they had a lot of options just given the timing, um, you know, so I think timing and, and, and luck is a big part of this whole thing. Um, you know, so, uh, that timing, you know, helped give me the opportunity. So I kind of took, took the approach of, you know, I get, I get a six month interview, I get a season long interview, mm-hmm. um, versus, somebody else is going to get two weeks at the end of this season and, and, or, you know, a couple phone calls and, a, and, uh, you know, so I just kind of took the approach of like, I mean, we talk about it all the time in our programs and, and coaches, right. Like just try and focus on the things you can control and do the best job you can every day and, and hope for the best. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm not, I wasn't thinking about, am I going to be able to get this job probably on a daily basis, but, uh, you know, and then again, timing and, and being fortunate and in some, um, in some ways early in that first season. Um, so we were, we went on a, uh, in that summer, our team, we did a foreign trip. We took our team down to Costa Rica um, 
And so we had 10 days of practice and some games down in Costa Rica. And um, so giving, giving our group kind of a big head start on the season and kind of where we were. Um, and then, so with those things, and then we had a really good senior point guard um, who uh, was, you know, kind of primed for a, a big year. And I think, you know, any coach with a, with a really talented senior point guard is it's a night, it's a comfort level and a kind of security blanket for us. And so I didn't, you know, all the things I didn't know what I was doing, he was covering up for a lot of that. And so I say that to say our team was kind of ahead of schedule um, when we got to the exhibition time and kind of early in the season, um, which for an interim coach is, is probably an important session there with, uh, you know, a lot of, ADs and other administrators watching what we're doing. And, you know, our first, um, our first exhibition game was at Pittsburgh. Um, Coach Carlson and, and uh, Coach Dixon were close friends. And so we flew to Pittsburgh for an exhibition game that had been set up. And so the first college basketball game I coached was at Pittsburgh. Um, again, and I think they won the ACC that year. Or, uh, we're really good. They had like Lamar Patterson and uh, I can't remember all they got, but they were, really good team in the ACC and um I think we were down like four with two minutes to go or something like that where we kind of hung around and you know we we were really small but we shot it so we're a terrible matchup for them so for all the all these like reasons uh maybe kind of circumstances all kind of coming together our team's way ahead of schedule there but they're not you know the matchup isn't great for them you know, we go and play a competitive game at Pittsburgh and, you know, AD sitting right there at the scores table. Like, I think that helps. And uh, our next exhibition game was at Grand Canyon in their first year of, of division, uh, division one transition. Um, and so they had just been division two the year before. Um, I think they had a player, like maybe their leading scorer suspended for the game. We won an exhibition game at Grand Canyon where our senior point guard makes a ton of plays down the stretch and we win a close game. So we got off to this really good start um, for a lot of reasons. And I don't think many of them were my coaching. Um, and so that's kind of a long, long winded way of saying, you know, we, we, we put ourselves in a good position and, and I was fortunate to be offered the job uh, by Christmas time. And, um, you know, so didn't, didn't really uh, have to go through that uh, stress of, the interview process at the end and, and kind of having it um, be an option and all that stuff. So uh, just really fortunate the way things have worked out. I think timing in this business and uh, is such a big part of it. Um, you know, it's not lost on me. There's a ton of guys who are um, better coaches, smarter than I am, more qualified that maybe never get that opportunity. And so, um, you know, I just feel really fortunate to, for the way things have worked out for me. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I was really happy to hear that your AD and their administration had so much faith in you that they hired you at Christmas. I don't think I've ever heard of an interim head coach hired in the middle of the year. I get, I bet that took a huge weight off of your back to know that you signed some sort of contract at that time. That's going to secure you for a couple of years there. Did you feel that when you were the interim before you signed as the head coach, did you feel that you coached differently? Not maybe not X's and O's, but maybe you were, just a little bit more tentative in your approach because you were, you, you didn't want to uh, upset anything or do anything different. Did you feel you were any different there or were you yourself the entire time? I, I felt like I was myself. I don't, I don't think, um, 
I don't remember any kind of like decisions where I, I felt like I factored in the job or anything. Like I, I felt pretty focused on trying to get better. Let's just win this game. What, you know, I was probably more overwhelmed with trying to be a head coach and make all those decisions and, sure. and just try and get it right for the players. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things, um, you know, it's hard. You're always kind of thinking about the job and, and when you're in that interim role a little bit, but, but I do think that I was able to just really um, make it about the players, focus on those guys and just like felt like my job was to give them in particular, those seniors, like my job is to just help them have a great senior year and, you know, the rest of it will take care of itself. And, and so um, I was really pretty focused on that. And, and I think I was able to um, just kind of be myself and, and focus on, trying to do a good job for those guys and uh, you know and it all worked out great for me in the end and you finished that first year with a very respectable 15 and 11 record and then then that's when you really started to take off uh your program started to take off with you at the head job uh, let's talk about some different aspects of running a program um, my first thing, and, and I get this first because people always say it's the most important, whether they're being cliche or not, but the first thing that I want to talk about is building relationships. How do you build relationships with your players that get them to trust you and work for you in a way that, that provides winning basketball? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's important. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, I think the, the players need to, like, feel confident that you have their best interests, um, at heart. And, um, you know, I kind of mentioned that in, in my approach with in that first year, but then that's kind of always been my approach is, um, you know, none of it, none of it's about, about me. It's about, it's about the players and, um, you know, they put the, they put the record next to my name, but I didn't win any of those games. You know, I feel like, um, you know, just trying to, like, if they know that, that they're the priority and that you're in it for them and, to help them develop and get better and to help them succeed. Um, then I think that, uh, the, the buy-in comes from that. And, um, you know, there's more trust there because, uh, they genuinely believe that you're doing it for them and you don't have all, all ulterior motives. And so, um, you know, just kind of that, that, that kind of honesty and, um, communication is always a big part of that. It's probably something I can still get better at and, and do a better job of, um, you know, but at the same time, I think um, if you're, if you're just kind of honest with everybody and, and um, put the players first and make them the priority, then I think that's a really good foundation for a relationship. Um, one of your, one of your skills uh, on the court uh, that seems to stand out is your ability to work and develop post players. Um, what are some things that you do with post players on a daily basis um, that help factor them in is an important part of your offense and defense? Yeah, well, um, you know, we, we've certainly been fortunate to have some good big guys and, um, you know, they're, they're a big part of uh, how we play. Um, so, you know, recruiting is a good foundation, right? If, we, if you have good players, then it's a little easier to develop them. Um, Brendan Clowry, one of my assistants, does a fantastic job with those guys um, in terms of just kind of daily working on footwork, touch, putting them in those spots they're going to be in. Um, you know, but we also uh, at the same time 
So with their skill development, uh, he's doing a great job. And, um, you know, he developed uh, Chris Hansen most recently into an All-American and, uh, you know, one of the best players in, in program history. And, and so um, – but then the other thing that we really try to do with those guys is, is think um, think about – putting them in a position to be successful and playing to their strengths. So not everybody's the same, not, you know, if Chris is off the floor, you know, we've had him have a couple injuries throughout his career. Uh, try to have the understanding that not all guys are created equal and we're not going to try and ask the next guy to do the things we're asking Chris to do. We're going to try and find a way to put, put that guy in a position to be successful. What are his strengths? Let's play to those. Um, so just trying to develop them all, um, and, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have a staff that's more than capable of that, uh, but then also kind of having that mindset of, you know, thinking individually in terms of putting guys in position to be successful uh, has, has really worked for us. When you, when you help develop a post at practice, do you have them work with uh, – do the drills that you have, are they work within the offensive style that you play, or are they aside from that? So what I mean is – I'll go to some practices and I'll see them working with the post and they'll work on post moves. They'll throw it to them back to the basket and they'll work on their post moves. Then I watch them play and they never throw it into the post guy. Now you're developing that part of the post game, but their offense is not predicated around that. How do you style your workouts to your offense? Yeah. And so that, that's, uh, that's a little bit what I was talking about in terms of playing to your strengths. So um, for example, um, you know, all our big guys, we're going to do some just kind of post moves. And I think some, there's some footwork that translates and, you know, it's not, you know, occasionally, you know, uh, they'll have matchups where um, we might want to throw it in the post. Uh, ours are, are, we're typically a little different. We're even at the division two level. We're not, we're not the biggest team. Um, so, but we're pretty skilled. So we get a lot of switches. So a lot of our post work, we'll have maybe some of our, our guards come down and, and, fight our guys in the post and things like that because most of the times when we're going to throw to them it's going to be versus switch um and so yeah we we definitely try to tailor things to where where we see them having those opportunities and so if it's not a guy we're going to throw it to um in the post then we're going to do a little less back to the basket and we're going to do more pick and pop or um whatever positions we have them in um, so in a, in a practice setting, it's going to be very kind of game specific to how we see them kind of getting opportunities. And then, you know, in the off season, things like that, we'll try to add things to their game so that hopefully we can expand it, um, the next time around. And, and there is maybe wider away or wider array of, of, um, situations we feel like they can be successful in. Um, we also kind of, we, we emphasize kind of a lot of the, um, spacing shooting the basketball we shoot a lot of threes and 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 we want our big guys to be able to do that so um you know we we have our our bigs and a lot of the guard and perimeter drills and and things like that so we 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 try to develop the overall skill level um you know i feel like that's going to translate to anything you want to do in the post anyway um you know if you can handle it better you can get to your spots to the back to the basket and i think we've all seen how good sometimes your guards can be in there just because they're your best basketball players. And so we try to kind of um, develop all our players in a well-rounded way. And we're not just throwing it to big guys with their back to the basket. Um, so yeah, that's a, 
that's kind of the hard version of it, at least. You touched on it a little bit. I want to go a little bit more. Um, you talked about Chris Hansen, and he was an All-American. And I can only assume that an All-American at your level would be great in the post, but I bet he also could play on the perimeter and have some guard skills as well with, with a talent like that. You said you you have the post also work on guard things, guard skills. Where Where is the line drawn where you tell an All-American like Chris Hansen, hey, we need you inside? And we want you to work on your overall game and play the perimeter. How do you how do you massage that in and make that work with a great player like that? Um, yeah, well, I think it's uh, so with Chris, it was easy. He he would prefer to be inside. We had to kind of coax him outside a little bit, you know. I, I think he just grew up as a as a big kid with backs of basket, and mm-hmm. uh, he's really talented one on one, draw a double, like he scores backs of basket. So that always helps. Um, but he, he was a fantastic, uh, shooter. Um, mm-hmm. I think his junior year is all American year. He was like 48% from three or something, something really, uh, unbelievable. And, um, and that was a progression across his career where we were just kind of encouraging him to get out and shoot it and trying to give him confidence. And then, um, you know, kind of took off from there. Um, the, the other parts of his skill set were, were a lot of reps in terms of, okay, now we've taken this guy who wants to be inside all the time and was back to the basket and we're, we're making him pop. If he doesn't shoot it on the pop, he's going to have to make a decision. And that's where the development in his skill level really came. Like we, he got to a place where he could take it a couple dribbles or, um, you know, go one more on an extra pass or follow his pass to a slip ball screen or, or whatever it was. But, you know, that was, I think, where a lot of that development comes in and reps and and conversations and film about, okay, this is the time for this play and reading the defense who's helping when you pop, because nobody's just going to let you pop and shoot it. Like you're shooting 48%. You're going to make everyone that you're open on help is coming. So what's the next progression and and trying to help them understand and see the, see the floor. Um, and I think when, when guys understand what's happening, not just what they are supposed to do, but what's happening on the floor, um, they're more confident and, 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 and uh, with, with their decision-making. And I think that improves skill level because it takes away something you're thinking about and, and you just have to react and play. And, and so, um, you know, Chris, Chris did a great job with his development in that, in that area and kind of reading defenses and, and things like that. But just in terms of, his skill and touch and just putting in the basket, that's stuff you can't teach and you mm-hmm. hope to get better. But, um, you know, if you start with the guy that just could put it in the basket from all over the place, then uh, you'll get there with the rest of it. I'm hearing a lot of individual work, off season work goals and things that you give your players. Um, how do you structure an off season workout program, both skill development and weight training? What are some, do you set goals for your players? Do you have a, a booklet or a packet? Do you have assistant coaches who come out and work with them? How do you do that to ensure that they're working on their game and not just that, but working on the things you want them to work on? Yeah. So we, um, well, from a, from a way training standpoint, we we're pretty fortunate in terms of our, our strength conditioning staff and, and they take care of a lot of that. Um, but from a basketball standpoint, um, you know, one of the, one of the things, that's a little bit unique about um, UC San Diego is the, is the quarter system. So we have 
our season ends, um, you know, maybe hopefully late March. And then um, that spring quarter, we get, you know, eight, nine weeks of, of time. That's just all skill development where we're with them um, on a, on a daily basis. So uh, we're able to control a lot of that through, through, through June versus like a semester school that's out early May. So we get a little more time in the, in the spring for some of that skill development. And then in the summer, um, we kind of talk about things we want them to work on, but, um, you know, I'm not in their ear all the time or, or giving them any kind of like regimented, um, kind of workout in the summer, they get some strength conditioning stuff, but we talk about what we want them to, to get better at. And, um, you know, we have a mature group that, you know, is motivated and, and our, our hope is that they kind of take it upon themselves to, to come back and get better. And, um, you know, but I, sometimes the summer is good for a little bit of a break from my voice and, and things like that. And, um, you know, they can work on some other things and expand their game. And, um, you know, the guys that are really motivated are, are going to, you know, if you give them a packet and they're not motivated, they're not going to do it anyway. So, um, you know, I think it's more about um, trying to help them understand where are the, the areas they need to get better. Uh, and then there has to be some, some kind of intrinsic motivation from those guys to really, to really make it happen. Um, if we have to hold their hand through, through all of it, then, um, you know, we're probably not going to get where we want to be anyway. No, that, that's very true. I, and I guess I, sometimes I forget the difference between coaching college adults and, uh, high school kids, um, in the off seasons in my off season, well, except for this one, but all the other off seasons I would have, I have a challenge where it's a 10,000 made shot challenge. So we'll go from June to August or maybe in September where they have to make 10,000 shots, 5,000 threes and 5,000 free throws. And then we have them where they chart it online and they put what they've done each day. And those who do it see a significant growth in their game. And those who don't, they're not penalized for not doing it. But why I do that is because, you know, a lot of guys say they get in the gym, but what are they working on when they get in the gym? I want them to work on the things that I want, which are threes and free throws. That's, that's the best thing that I can ask them to do with me not being in there. So, uh, but I understand what you're coming from with, you know, these are men and, and if they want to be a, they want to play basketball at the high level, if they don't want to have a recruit come over them, if they don't, if they want to play professionally, then they're going to have to do things on their own uh, to get better and make that decision. Yeah. Absolutely. And then this, the stuff that you're talking about, I think is, is great too. There are some, for us, some NCAA rules about um, the summer and our access. And so um, we're also like somewhat limited in, you know, the feedback we could like, we can't require them to like tell us how many shots they've made or taken. So there, there's some other rules around it that, that just, um, they convoluted a little bit. Um, and, and so I, I I may approach it differently if, if without those rules. So. I didn't realize that. I knew you couldn't have them in the gym and that you were under hours restrictions during the year, but I didn't realize you couldn't even communicate with them in the off season. Yeah. If, if you're telling them, like you can give them here are the things you want to work on. And, and, mm-hmm. and um, but if you're requiring them to report back on what they did, then that's mm-hmm. no longer a voluntary activity according to the NCAA. Um, or at least, yeah, the way our compliance uh, reads it. So, the you know, there's lots of little um, idiosyncrasies that the NCAA has with, with access and what they're requiring and um, those kind of things. That makes sense. 
let's talk about your recruiting. One thing that really stands out in your recruiting is that you've had four freshmen in your seven years, and really, we, well, let's call it six because of the first year was an interim year, four freshmen of the year honors um, of the entire league that you, that, you, that you have recruited or your staff has recruited. What is it that you look at in a high school player or possibly junior college player? What does he look at in a recruit that, um, that you think will transfer over right away to your program? Um, yeah, well, I think you got to count that first year because I'm pretty sure Adam was the freshman of the year. Oh, okay. Okay. Then we'll take it. Four out of seven. Four out of seven. That's still pretty yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think, um, when we evaluate, um, so for us, um, the, the, the place we start is, um, academics, um, mm-hmm. with everyone just to get to, uh, making sure we're being efficient with our time and those kind of things. Like we have a little different academic requirements than maybe um, what, uh, what most places have. But then when you, when you start evaluating the basketball part of it, um, you know, skill set, uh, we kind of talked a lot about having skilled big guys in space. And, and if you kind of dig into to our numbers, again, we're shooting, shooting a lot of threes, high volume. Um, I think we were, I think 53% of our shots on the season last year were from three. We shot 40% as a team. We had like 12 and a half makes a game. So um, a lot of it starts with um, what level does he shoot it? You know, I'm probably when, when my assistants bring a guy, it's, you know, that's probably the first question is how does he shoot it? Um, but overall skill set. And so for us, if, 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 if you're not shooting it at the level we feel like uh, we require, then kind of the bar goes up in, in the other, Mm-hmm. spots like you got to be plus in your vision or your playmaking or your ability to get to the rim or you know all of the above um so we want we want a lot of guys that shoot the basketball that's, that's certainly an emphasis for us and then the other thing we really try to evaluate um and it's hard but um something that i think translates to making an impact early is um feel for the game uh instincts does he know how to play? Um, and that shows up in a, in a variety of ways. Um, I think passing is a great indicator of that. If you have that vision and, and, and ability to kind of see the game a step or two ahead, typically your feel is pretty good. And, um, you know, nose for the ball, uh, instincts defensively, you get your hand on it a lot, like all those things. Are you, are you a good cutter? Uh, I think those things uh, indicate – basketball IQ. And I think that if, if you're an instinctive learner and you can pick things up quickly, and again, we have really smart guys and and part of that is our academic requirements. So we have a lot of smart guys in the room. I think those, those high IQ guys that learn like where you show it to them one time and and they have it. um, I think that allows for early impact. And, um, and so I think, when, when you have those guys that have the great instincts and, and feel and they can, they can pick things up quickly, you know, their, their learning curve is, is much less steep in terms of uh, their ability to have it translate to the floor right away. And, and we've been fortunate to have some of those guys um, in the last few years. And, and so uh, we've had some guys come in as freshmen and, and have really big impacts in our program. Um, you talk about shooting and I'm, I'm going to get into more of the numbers a little bit later, but since you brought up 
led the nation in field goal percentage and you made about 12 a game. So it's not like you shot four and made three out of four every game. I mean, you shot 12. I mean, you made 12 and still led the league or led the nation in field goal percentage. Do you think that you just recruit all the best shooters or what do you do when you get a good shooter out of high school or junior college and make him a great shooter? Um, so yeah, we, we've recruited, we value it in the recruiting process. Um, and then we've had, uh, we've had some guys who were good shooters that made them themselves into great shooters. Um, we kind of talked about all that off season and kind of, um, the time that goes in and, and we've had some guys who were, uh, fantastic workers and, uh, really improved and, and got better at it. Um, and then the other thing that I think, um, we do a pretty good job of is uh, I've talked a little bit with the big guys in terms of playing to their strengths. Um, but like we're, we try to get the right guys, the shots. So, um, you know, we're talking a lot about how many threes we made and um, I don't know the number off the top. I think it was like four, you know, 12 and a half a game. We had two guys or made probably made half of those or more. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're getting two, two guys. If we're making 12, just two guys are making six of them every night, you know? And so that's a, a good start to, um, you know, you don't have, like we have a lot of guys that shoot it um, obviously, but we have a few that are, that are really high level guys. And then we try to get those guys as many shots as we can. And, and I think the self-awareness um, from not just those guys, but their teammates and kind of the understanding of what we're trying to accomplish on a, on a possession by possession basis. And, and um you know, who we want taking which shots, um, I think is something that I know that this group this year was, was probably the best uh, we've ever had just in terms of the maturity and the self-awareness and the understanding um, where we really were able to get the right guys in the right spots. And, um, you know, when you have the, when you have your best shooters taking the, taking the most shots, then, uh, you know, things typically work out well. And so, um, you know, we shoot a lot as a team, but it's not kind of everyone's equal in that, in that either. How do you, and, and I think all the coaches have this question, especially on a three point happy shooting team, because I would have to believe in order to foster that, that atmosphere that the threes are going in, you have to make sure that every player is confident in himself. And they can't step up to the three-point line and look at the bench and say, is coach going to pull me for this? So how, how do you get the team to buy into the right guys, predominantly two guys, shooting those threes and still keep everyone else confident in their own shot and shooting it when they're open? Um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, a balance you have to have. And I think um, there's a level of maturity that is required from the guys um, that are the lower volume, uh, guys, right. So, um, Mikey Howell, our point guard this year, uh, was our, is now like the all time assist leader in in school history. And, um, you know, I don't think has had a, you know, he didn't have a big reputation as a shooter coming out of high school and he's gotten a lot better at it. Um, but he's a pass first guy who, has kind of built himself into an efficient player by taking the right ones, taking the wide open ones, taking the catch and shoot ones. And, um, you know, if he's not in that, 
in that setting, he's going to try and make a play for somebody else. And, uh, you know, but there's a level of maturity that's required in that to um, kind of stay with what's working. Like I'm shooting a high percentage. I'm in the forties as in a percentage percentage wise, but I'm just going to keep taking the wide open ones. And when it's not, I'm going to let this other guy take the harder ones and, and kind of, um, there's a lot of uh, just conversations and film about what we want from each guy um, in terms of which shots are the right shots, where we want the ball to go, how we're trying to attack on different possessions. Um, and I think, I think a lot of it comes back to um, the player's understanding of the overall play. Right. I think um, if you, if you have the full picture, if the kids have the full picture of what you're trying to accomplish, uh, and they know where they fit into it, then then I think it's easier for them to kind of stay in that in that role. Um, and, and so that's something you know that we uh, we really try to help them understand with with what we're trying to do and where they fit and and see the whole play. Um, you know, we kind of talk sometimes about the the learning progression for, for players is, is kind of like, know your job, like just know where to be, know what the play is, like just kind of the basic part. And then they, then they kind of start reading the defense. Um, and so they, but they're just kind of reading their defender and then ultimately they'll get to where they know kind of all 10 guys on the floor and what's happening and if help comes, where it's going to come from and what that means for, you know, that's, that's the level we want to get to. We want everyone to get there. Um, and, and I think when that happens, then, um, when they have that picture and that understanding, I feel like it's just a little easier for them to stay in that role because it's, they can see their, their part of it. Do you think that they are able to understand that more with the film that you guys watch or is it drills? Is it explanation from you? How, how do you, how do you help them build that maturity? It's all, it's all of the above. And I think it comes with experience. It comes with reps. It comes with conversations. Um, you know, it, it doesn't very few just kind of show up with that and it's, it's a learned thing. And, and so I kind of talked about our group this year. Um, we had, um, three guys in their fourth year, one guy in his fifth year, one guy in his third year from our starting, right. So like just the experience level and the maturity, um, is, is something that you can't always, it's, it's not, it's, it doesn't always work exactly that way, right? This was a pretty special group from that standpoint. And so, um, but I think you, we saw the, the benefits of it, um, on a daily basis. You talked a little bit about percentages. Um, are there certain percentages that you hold guys accountable to in practice and shooting drills? How often do you stat your, uh, your shooting on, in practice and in games? And is there like a certain level where a player will say, look at, I understand that these two players shoot more because in practice they shoot 60% from this drill and I only shoot 45%. Is there a way that you do that? Or is it just, or it's just everyone knows those guys are better and they just, and they just, uh, they just accept it. Um, yeah. So we, we do stat it all. Um, so every, like anything in practice, if, if it's live five on five, um, mm-hmm then we have it kind of um, statted um, so that if someone kind of comes and says, well, why, you know, why do I not get to take these shots? And then right. 
because you don't make them. Um, or basically it is kind of what it comes down to. Um, or, you know, it's helpful too to, you know, there's, there's some guys that if we're just going to rebound for you and you're just going to catch and shoot three, you're going to be at just a really high level. And so, so then when we get to the five on five setting, why isn't it translating? Why, why aren't you kind of making shots at this? And I think that's a big one for young, for guys that, that maybe they don't understand. Um, and, and so then we have conversations about how they're working, right? Are you intentional in um, your extra work? Because if you're just going to stand there and make catch and shoot threes and, and you can do it at a really high rate, um, and that's great. We want guys to get those reps in and, and the touch and all that. Like there's, there's value in that, but if it's not translating for you, then we have to think about why the work isn't paying off. And so uh, maybe that means we need to get you in more of the game shots and um, do it with a different pace. Um, you know, let's go. And then we have the film of, of all their shots too. So we can say, well, let's go back and look at, um, your last 20 shots or 50 shots or whatever it is, where are they coming from? Okay. Now how do we work on let's that's where your shots are coming from. Let's work on those. Let's get you in those spots. Let's work on, on that. Um, and then hopefully it'll start to translate more, um, you know, and so uh, that, that there is definitely a, a kind of balance. You kind of touched on earlier of like kind of keeping guys confident and, um, and also keeping them in the shots that you want. Um, and then there's the ones where you, you have a lot of confidence in them and maybe they're not shooting the ball well. And so then um, kind of staying with them and encouraging them to, to keep shooting it, um, you know? And so once they get to a level where we feel confident in, in, in how they shoot it, um, I think we're pretty, we have a pretty aggressive approach to them. You know, I'm telling guys all the time, you can't, you can't make three, you know, you can't make eight if you only shoot three, you know, and um, passing up open looks for some guys is like, you know, if we, we look at possessions and, and if we pass up an open shot for a guy who can make it, okay, well, let's evaluate how that possession ended up because open shots are hard to get. Um, and what we end up with a huge percentage of the time is worse than the shot we passed up. So, um, you know, once, once they kind of get to a level where everyone feels good about how they're shooting the basketball, then we really want them to be aggressive and look for those shots, understand where their shots are coming from, um, be ready for them, all that kind of stuff. Well, I love that. Any, any, any recruit who, who hears a coach say you can't make eight if you only shoot three, uh, they've got to be excited to go there. Um, but you weren't just a three-point shooting team. Um, you were first uh, in field goal percentage defense and third in scoring defense in your league. So how do you balance, I would assume, uh, an up-and-down style of play with a lot of three-point shots and also the defensive balance, being able to get back and, and uh, hold teams to a, a low, a, a best in field goal percentage defense? What do you teach on the defensive end that makes that work? Um, we're pretty, uh, we're mostly man defensively. Um, you know, and I think a lot of defense, you know, a lot of the defensive stuff comes down to, um, effort, anticipation, some of that stuff we talked about in terms of the evaluation with feel and, and, uh, 
basketball IQ, I think that that thousand percent shows up on the defensive end uh, as well. And so, um, you know, those same guys who are kind of seeing the whole play and making making instinctive plays on offense are doing the same thing defensively. And, um, you know, so that anticipation and, and understanding can make you half step quicker um, if, if you're not quite there athletically. And, and so, um, again, we have really, really smart guys um, that do a great job with that part of it. But then also in terms of game plan and um, execution, um, I think our guys do a really good job uh, with that kind of stuff. So if we want to change a coverage uh, in a ball screen, if we want to double the post, if we want to do kind of a, a variety of things, um, maybe one, maybe they got two bigs and, and we're going to switch one and, um, you know, vary the coverage on the, on the other, like our guys have no issues with, with those kind of things that allow us to kind of bend our defense to, to try and uh, for each opponent. Um, and then, you know, a lot of it just comes down to competitiveness and effort. And, and I think our guys are really great there too. So, um, you know, they're good basketball players and it's not just, I mean, a lot of it shows up in the points and the shooting, but um, I think our guys are, are try to be committed to both sides of the floor. I know I've never, I've never heard someone say that when we think of the guys, a great feel for the game, my mind has always gone to the offensive side and finding guys obviously with passing and, you know, being able to penetrate and kick, being able to see the seams and get to the basket. I guess I've never equated it in my mind to also a feel on the defensive end where you know what the other team's going to do. You can anticipate well. Um, and, and I think that's a great, I think that's a great point to make. What are the things that you, that you think your team does best defensively? Or maybe even what are the things you focus on? If you could pick two or three things that you focus on the most defensively when you guys practice, what are those things? Um, so just in terms of this team that, that again, was the, the, the one that we just went 30 and one and, and, and feel like um, – felt like we had a chance to win the national championship, honestly, like it was, we were, we were, um, but I, I thought our team, uh, this time around, um, was the best team we've ever had in rotation. So once we had to put two guys in the ball and bring some help, um, I thought this was the best team we've had at, um, getting out of rotation by either like making a play on the ball and, and turning disadvantage into turnover or just, um, kind of getting it out of a scramble situation into matched up again. Um, And, and, and that's probably something we do a lot is just kind of like short-sighted defensive help and recover type stuff that everybody's doing. Um, I think like three on three, four on four type uh, things where we, we, we maybe put defense at disadvantage. Um, But we talk a lot about, how we play in rotation. So, I mean, offenses are geared to force help or, or put two guys on the ball. Uh, I mean, we're certainly trying to do that. Um, and then once that happens, because if you can just match up and guard everybody straight five on five, you should, you're going to have success in that game anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of it is not really going to matter. Um, but there's, there's always times where you can't do that or, or that's not going to happen on a possession. Um, and so how you get from two to the ball 
either back to matched up or prevent scoring opportunity in, in that kind of outnumbered situation. So how you play with, you know, one on two on the weak side or uh, two on three or whatever the numbers are. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you can, if you can kind of make, make plays and, and show a little more help than you're actually going to give or, or um, you know, give, make a pass go over your head as opposed to getting zipped one more. I think that goes a long way to getting out of rotation. Um, and so that's something we talk about a lot. And, and I, there's a million ways to set it up and, and create it. Um, we try to do that kind of maybe opponent specific each week based on maybe the spots we think we're going to be having to give more help and then um, trying to prepare that way. But I think um, how you play after you give the help or after you give put two on the ball, I think is really, really important um, for kind of the type of shots you're going to end up giving up. And, And we talk a lot about dictating shots too. So, um, in circum in certain circumstances, you know, okay, if we're going to take this, this first option away, then we know what we're giving up and we, and then given who's over there, who do we want to take what shot, what are we okay with living, you know, what will we live with? Um, so, you know, again, that comes from being in rotation, but then dictating the shots that, um, you know, we're okay with, you know, a longer two. So if we chase them off the three point line, we've dictated the shot a little bit, things like that. We, we talk about a lot. Um, We touched on this a little bit before um, with the players and their maturity and buying into roles um, and even their off season work and their film study. I think that all is a part of it. How do you develop your culture and philosophy? Because I know the first thing that people might say, well, when you're 30 and one, everyone has a good attitude. And it's, you know, if you have a bad attitude, you're really standing out and no one wants to be a part of that when you're winning that many games. But you, you've had more than just one really good year. You've, this may have been your best year, but you've had many years stacked up that were very good, which leads me to believe that that culture and philosophy is something that you've ingrained in your program. What are some things that you do that help foster that team first attitude, that hard work attitude um, that your players exhibit on the floor? Yeah. So, so first, first of all, players create culture. I, I'm a firm believer in that, um, that the, the players create the culture and that we are just trying to um, create an environment um, to kind of empower them. Um, but, you know, I can, I can talk about culture or say all the things, but like they have to go out and do it. They have to, kind of set the example, set the tone, hold, hold each other accountable, all those things. So um, first and foremost, we've had, um, we've had our best players be our hardest workers. Um, Really my, my entire time. And I think that more than anything um, goes, goes a long way to creating the culture that you're looking for. Um, in addition to that, we, we try to really take kind of a bottom up approach to, uh, to that and to our leadership, meaning, um, it's less about like having that that one captain or leader bring everybody, uh, like have them be responsible for raising everybody's level. We want to keep the whole group at a high level and set the standard really high. And then, um, and then it becomes, it becomes difficult to be the person that doesn't want to 
put in extra work, right? Like everybody's doing things at this level. And so it's harder to shy away from that. It's more like you have to lean into that. And then even those other guys, those kind of like leaders, your best players, they're going to go above and beyond whatever we tell them anyway. So the higher we set the standard for the, for the group, it pushes everybody up. And then the, those kind of like top guys will, will still raise the level and, and kind of make things um, even better. And I think that's where things can go from good to great um, and maybe turn into something special. Um, but we've had, I mean, our, uh, our group in terms of the way they work and approach things, I, I, I very often have to try and talk to guys, especially during the season, talk to guys about doing less uh, as opposed to doing more because I'm worried about their legs or, or things like that. Um, you know, and, and they're promising me they're not going to stay too long and shoot too many and uh, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's a great problem. I think everybody wishes they had had that kind of issue, but um, I think that comes from setting the, setting the bar really high for what, what we want everybody to do and kind of what our standard is. And then, um, you know, some of those guys are going to go above and beyond anyway. And then, um, you know, and I think it, it, it's also easier for those guys who want to do more and want to do something, something special uh, with how they work. Um, I think if you're, if you're new, like if you're a freshman or a young guy and that's, you have that competitive spirit and that work ethic and then you walk in and everybody's doing it, then it just kind of, uh, it fosters that it, it builds, it snowballs. So, um, I mean, you know, we were fortunate early on to have some super hardworking best players and, and then, um, that just kind of transitioned to the next guy and the next guy. And, um, you know, now we got a, a whole bunch of them and, um, you know, it's, we've been really fortunate uh, as coaches because it's not something we've had to uh, really try to. The players do it; they, they create it, they want it, um, and I think if you get the right guys in, then they, they just um, they love it. When you say um, set the standard that you uh, and your coaches set the standard, can you give me an example of what setting the standard means, uh, whether on the floor or off the floor? Yeah, just so we just talk about, um, you know, if it's if it's just practice, how we're going to practice, then um, we talk about the effort, uh, the energy uh, that's required on a daily basis. Uh, and we try to hold everyone accountable to to that. How hard are you going to play? Uh, what kind of competitive spirit are you bringing? Uh, what kind of enthusiasm do you have on a daily basis? Um and, and try to create an environment that um, is competitive and, um, you know, it's a fast-paced practice and, and we're going to get better in that environment and we're pushing ourselves. So um, I think that's our responsibility as coaches uh, and then teach them, like, this is, this is the level. And so then when they practice in that way, reinforcing – that's it. That's what you have to continue to do. And then not just, okay, today was good, but that you have to do it every day. And like the consistency of performance is something that I think uh, young guys struggle with, you know, they can have a really good day or two days, but can they put a week together? Can they put a month together? Can they put a season together? Um, And then um, from a work ethic standpoint, like 
that's just more about explaining to them how, how things work in terms of, okay, this is the time of year. This is what we're doing as a team. So we don't have the time to spend on your individual development, but that doesn't mean it can stop. Like you still have to um, put in time in order to get the results you want. Um, you know, and then if, if you're not playing at a level, then let's evaluate what you're doing, right? Like if you're not shooting the ball, we kind of talked about the guy that was making shots, but then they weren't translating. Well, why isn't that happening for you? Okay. Are you not playing as well as you're capable of? Well, how hard are you working? Why, why is that? You know, and that's where it goes back to what are your best players doing? And when, when the best players are in there doing extra um, and, and working super hard and practicing really hard, then, you know, you're able to use them as an example of, well, here's the best player on our team. And this is the level that he's working at and playing at. And if you're not there in any aspect, how can you expect to then like compete with him or play at that level? And so um, when the players, again, kind of set that great example, and then we try to just kind of hold them accountable for how hard they work. Um, I think that's where you get everybody kind of getting in and get doing extra. And, and now it becomes a little bit competitive and, you know, people don't want other people to work harder than them or put in more time. And, um, you know, I think that's where it, it can kind of build in itself. Well, I like that coach. I mean, to hear, you know, throughout the course of this podcast, your best, one of your, an all American, you have to beg to go play outside um, a pass first point guard who takes more joy of, of setting guys up than getting his own shots. And then your best players consistently being your hardest workers and set the standard. That is, I can't think of a better formula uh, for success. Then you see where you have all these, all these accolades and things that you've been able to get as a team. Um, how do you, how do you develop uh, professionally? Because just as we expect our players to continue to improve their skill set, what are some things do you do to improve your skill set as a coach? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think there's so many resources now. Um, I think at some point, I don't, I don't want to date myself, but there was definitely a time where you felt like you needed to go to a clinic or, um, you know, maybe go watch practice somewhere. And I think there's a lot of value in that too. So I think that stuff is great if, if you can do it, but I, I also think there's ways to do it, um, that are a little more efficient with your time. And, and you just, there's so much stuff that you're, is accessible now. And I, you know, if it's as high school coaches, I don't know what everybody has access to, but um, for us, there's, there's synergy and, and some of these other things where um, if you just want to learn about somebody's offense, you can just, I mean, you can watch hours of tape and games and it's all available to you. Um, you know, and then, uh, on different social media, there's, there's different guys putting out clips of different actions or things offensively or defensively, new things that people are talking about. Um, I think there's just, there's so much information available that, um, you know, it's so, it's, it's great. Like you can always, well, okay, I want to get better at this and let me just find a couple people who are doing this great and I can go and watch what they do and, and try and steal their ideas. I mean, nothing we're doing is original. You know what I mean? We've just, mm -hmm. we've stolen it all from other people. And, um, and so, uh, I mean, that's first and foremost, there's just so much stuff out there. Uh, just go find what you want to do. And, 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 and then 
the other thing too that uh i've probably done more of in this quarantine off season is some of these just kind of zoom chats with other coaches and, and people connecting and talking about listening to other coaches about how they do things and um that I really hope, I, I mean, there's a lot of things from when we talked about Zoom when I logged on, but I think there's some things from this that we will certainly keep uh, and the professional development might be one of it where um, the ability to just kind of reach out to a coach and, hey, let's have, um, you know, maybe you can't go to lunch, but you can jump on a Zoom because you're in different states and, and just talk about, you know, X's and O's. And so, um, you know, I've been trying to share things with with coaches and have conversations and steal from them. And, and I think that, um that's, you know, it's a way to kind of develop relationships, get to know people and, and, and kind of share information is, is a great way to, to develop, um, you know, as a coach. Um, you mentioned clinics, you know, I, I view these podcasts that I do as, as clinics. I mean, we, you just put us, our listeners through a clinic. Uh, we didn't get to see on floor stuff, but that's okay. Um, you know, the stuff that you said and the, and the way that you run your program, is a clinic. I mean, it really is. It shows some things that people can get from and myself included. Uh, what are some advice that you have uh, for coaches, any coaches who are trying to get in the game, maybe try to coach at your level in college. What's some advice that you can give them from your firsthand experience? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, well, from, it depends on, you know, what, where, where you are in your, in your, progress right like if you're just trying to get in the door um then you know i think it's uh it can be a challenge sometimes it's just kind of getting that first opportunity and then you just kind of work to create that one opportunity and then just work as hard as you can to develop some some value um to then move up or move on or, or, or whatever the uh the case may be um you know i think one thing and, and i actually had a had a conversation or a zoom meeting with some other coaches and and kind of talk to some, some guys who are maybe already had their foot in the door a little bit, like younger guys in, in college uh, coaching. Um, but it applies to high school or, or really any level of if you're an assistant and you're thinking about moving or wanting to move into that head coaching role. Um, I think that, you know, just kind of from my experience, there, there were a lot of things that, that I wasn't prepared for um, that I hadn't thought about until I got to, the game or the situation. And now I had to make a decision um, just based on feel or guess or whatever the case may be. And, and I think that that's something maybe coaches aren't thinking about, but I, you know, in particular for assistant coaches who are on the cusp of moving or thinking about moving to a head coaching role, um, you know, I think having a vision for, for how you want to play is important. Um, you know, I would say we didn't really find the way we wanted to play until, maybe year six of my, uh, my career, uh, so far. Um, and I think we're, we're really just kind of starting to, to find that. And, and I don't know that I had the offensive vision, um, and something that, that I've tried to develop a little bit. Um, and then just from like game situation stuff too, like, um, if you want to be a head coach, uh, or you're going to be a head coach, are you fouling up three? Um, you trying for a two for one with, with 50 seconds left? Are you fouling um, with, are you, or are you fouling or relying on your defense if you're down two 
with 45 seconds to go. Well, what if it's 37 seconds and now you're not going to have the ball for very long? You know, like some of those situational things are things that I think I, I, I don't want to speak for other people, but I know I wasn't prepared for until I was in those situations. And I think if you're, um, if you're moving into that seat, like those are things that I think are really important. Um, do you play guys with two fouls in the first half or do they all sit? Um, do you, will you start them with three in the second half if you let them get their third and uh, just like all of those, what's your plan for up five with the ball minute and 10, how are you going to close the game? Um, do you, do you have an idea for that? Do your players know what that is? Um, and I think, those are things like those little specific things are some of the things maybe assistant coaches aren't thinking about, um, but really become big decisions and, and uh, for head coaches. And I would say that there's no right answer. I don't have, you know, I'm not trying to say here's the right answer or here's the way you should do it. I think, uh, I think you should think about where you want your default to be and then reasons why you would get away from that or exceptions you would make. Okay. I have this, this guy who's experienced and smart. He can play with two fouls in the first half. I feel okay about that, but you know, so it's fine to have some variability and you don't have to be rigid with it, but you just want to be thinking about your vision for, for some of that and, 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 and where you land on a default standpoint and then why you might deviate. Um, And I think if you, if you have some of that, in place when you start you certainly be ahead of where I was and and I think it's it's something that um you know if you want to be a head coach those are some of the things you probably want to be comfortable with in terms of how you uh where you stand on some of those decisions that come up in in game situations coach where can some of where can our listeners reach out to you if they want to ask you questions or pick your brain maybe come see you practice what's what's the best way to get a hold of you yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, in particular high school, high school coaches are always welcome at our practices and, um, you know, really all coaches are welcome if, uh, if they want to come see us practice or the way we do things. Uh, and, and email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, and that is just, uh, E Olin. So first initial E last name, Olin, O-L-E-N at UCSD.edu. Um, and yeah, shoot it, shoot me an email. And, uh, anytime anybody wants to come to practice or catch a game or any of that, we would, uh, everybody's welcome. Coach, thank you very much for joining us. Um, uh, we will be rooting on the, uh, UC San Diego Tritons next season and hoping for, uh, one that was at least, uh, close to as good as this season was for you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. Well, that does it for the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at nicksonato at ymail.com. See you next time.